Hello and welcome to the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. This is the show where we talk about all things transportation, anything that gets you from here to there. I am the traffic anchor and the transportation reporter for Denver 7 News, Jason Luber. And if you would like to be a part of this fine program, you can always give me a call at the listener hotline. That phone number is 303 303- 832-0217. Leave your comment there. There's also all kinds of contact links in the description of this show. Today on the show, I am talking about congestion. And specifically, congestion on the major interstate west of Denver in Colorado that residents here use to get to the mountains from Denver. It's called Interstate 70. It's very busy in the winter and the summer, mainly on the weekends. I'm sure in your town... If you're not in Colorado, you have a major road that will take you to your favorite recreation areas, and I'm sure that road is very busy during the weekends and on the holidays, and this uh, pertains to you as well, because I'm sure there are groups that are trying to alleviate congestion, whether it was when I was visiting my brother when he lived in Jacksonville, and there's a major road that goes out to the beaches, and that's always busy. Same thing for about any town that there, when, when I was in Atlanta, driving up uh, uh, Georgia 400, going up to Lake Lanier, a lot of folks or people are still doing that. So there are places in the country where you have this recreational highway, if you will, on the weekends, especially Fridays and Sundays, where you see all this traffic. And there's a group here in Colorado, and it's called the I-70 Coalition, and they advocate for better traffic flow on Interstate 70. And they have a new campaign that they've titled, Break Up With Your Car. Now, what they want you to do is to get on a bus. They want to increase transit ridership between these front-range cities, north and south of Metro Denver, to and from the mountains. The questions I have are, how are you going to go camping from a bus? Sure, a bus is fine for some people to take them to a specific location for a specific activity, like skiing, for example. But I can't put a tent and camping gear in a bus. Well, I guess I could, but the bus would then drop me off at a bus terminal, and then I'd have to find my way into the great wide open. Uh, Anyway, I I think it's one of the major hurdles. It would be the same thing if you are, let me use that example of being in Jacksonville. You're going to take all your beach wear and beach stuff and your cooler and all that other stuff and put it in a bus and then be driven to the beach and then walk to the beach with all your stuff and then do the same thing on the way back. It's just not very practical, nor very easy to do that sort of thing. Uh, anyway, I'm going to be speaking with Margaret Bose. She's the director of the I-70 Coalition, and I'll ask her some of these questions and figure uh, out, because I really think it does pertain not only to us here in Colorado and along I-70, I think this is a bigger issue, and it does affect people around the country. Anyway, we'll be talking to Margaret here in just a minute. First, here is a question that I think everyone has been dying to know. Do flies survive when they fly out of your car window at highway speeds? (laughs) This is an article in Jalopnik by someone we had uh, here on the show way, way back on episode 130, Jason Torchinsky. Um, I interviewed Jason about the future of autonomous cars. It'd be interesting to go back and listen to that episode. Um, Episode, again, 130. It's 130 is his episode. Um, And you know what? I'll put a link to that episode in the description of the show so we can both go back and, uh, and listen to it. Anyway, Jason writes this. He says, I think we've all been in this situation. You're driving along at normal highway speeds of at least a mile a minute or more 
when you notice a fly sitting around in your car. Since you're not an insect Uber, you decided to tell that fly to take a hike, and you roll down your window. At some point, the fly will notice the open window and exit your car, moving at a speed of, let's say, 70 miles an hour. So what happens then? I suppose it's the equivalent of a stationary fly suddenly being blasted with 70-mile-an-hour winds. We've seen how tiny insects, like flies, fall relatively slowly and usually harmlessly to the ground from significant heights because of the density of air, and their small size slows them down. The significant impact of air density on little insects would also likely mean that the mass of air hitting the fly would have a pretty significant, even violent effect on the fly, wouldn't it? So what happens to these flies? Do wings get torn off? Are antennae sundered, legs wrenched away, leaving just a helpless head and thorax and abdomen to bounce onto the pavement? So I reached out to Dr. Watson, a professor of entomology at North Carolina State University, and asked him how flies fare when being slammed into air masses at highway speeds. Once again, this is an article in Jodlopnik by uh, Jason Torchinsky, um, uh, talking about if a, you know what, what happens to a fly if it flies out of the window. Anyway, all right, back to the article. Quote, They'll survive, Dr. Watson told me with a lot of confidence. Dr. Watson said that he's seen flies that survive 100-mile-an-hour hurricanes and tornadoes, and as long as they don't impact anything hard, they can take severely violent wind barrages without experiencing any real harm. Wings remain anchored, as do all of their tiny appendages, as fly anatomy is surprisingly robust. Because flies are so generally durable, the only place that exhibits any real wear and tear are the edges of the wings, which tend to get frayed and fragmented over time. So an old fly, that means in the wild, about two weeks, up to a month in captivity, will have wing edges that show a bit of wear. He also mentioned that flies' feet have structures known as tenant setae. I'm sure I'm ruining that. Uh, <laughs> that allows for incredible grip on surfaces, even seemingly smooth surfaces like windshield glass. The takeaway here is do not worry about the fate of flies that you've launched from your car at 85 miles an hour. They'll be just fine. My whole life, my concern was more what happens to the various insects in their new location. Do they make friends? Can they speak the local dialect? Are they spreading horrific fly diseases that herd immunity already existed for them back home? And what about the bugs that end up on an airplane? Is there anyone there to pick them up? Did their bags even make it? Again, <laughs> that was an article from Jason Torchinsky in Jalopnik. Um, and, and you can listen to the episode that I had Jason on this show uh, back on episode 130. The link is in the description of that show. So I guess flies and other insects will be just fine if you send them out. Well, there is, there is a, a, a quite a – somebody was asking me this the other day. Because uh, I posted this picture on my Instagram page uh, at, De at Denver 7 Traffic, if you want to see my Instagram page, uh, of this moth, this really big moth that was on the outside of my house, this brick uh, part of my house. And it, it blended in very well. But I, my wife thought it was creepy. I thought it was actually kind of pretty. And then as I was talking to somebody about that moth and uh, as I was talking to her, um, said that, yeah, they're, they're, they're beautiful unless they're in your car with you as you're driving 60 miles an hour and then try to dive bomb your head. Then all you want to do is get it out. <laughs> well, the dream for some is to have people mass commuting in buses or trains, especially on highways that see peak use congestion to a special destination like the mountains west of Denver. 
congestion that you would typically see on a typical weekday commute. Now, there's a campaign here in Colorado from a group called the I-70 Coalition that's titled Break Up With Your Car, and it's trying to increase transit ridership between the Front Range cities, north and south of Metro Denver, to and from the mountains. Now, the goal is to alleviate traffic on the major mountain highway, Interstate 70, here in Colorado, but this also could apply to your town, where you have a lot of recreation traffic to a specific spot. Joining me now to talk about this and all the other issues with a specific congestion problem is Margaret Bowes, the director of the I-70 Coalition. Margaret, thank you for being here on the world-famous Driving You Crazy podcast. Well, thank you for having me. All right, so before we get into the issues along I-70, let's get to know Margaret. You are not only the director of the I-70 Coalition, but you are also the executive director of the Colorado Association of Ski Towns, so you're very familiar with the issues there in the mountains and the mountain communities. That's absolutely true, and transportation is an issue that's uh, um, an issue for both organizations. So what brought you to the mountains? Why do you like the mountains so much, and why do you advocate for them? Well, I mean, who doesn't love the Colorado mountains, right? (laughs) So when I had the opportunity to move up there, I grabbed it and uh, just love, love living in such a beautiful place and feel very fortunate to do so. I grew up on the Front Range, so I've certainly spent a lot of time driving back and forth between the Denver metro area and the mountains. Uh, How did you get involved with the I-70 Coalition? You know, I have a lot of experience working with local government organizations, coalitions that kind of coalesce around a specific issue. And so that has kind of become my thing. And I just love working on kind of consensus building, in this case, among local governments and businesses on the I-70 corridor. And we advocate for improvements, both long-term and short-term, to the um, the challenge that I-70 presents to our state. Was there a moment, was there a time when you were driving maybe in I-70 congestion that you said, there has got to be a better way, and I'm the person that knows how to lead <laughs> the, the group of people to find a better way. Was there a spark in any way that made you want to get involved? Well, I certainly have spent my fair share of time sitting in I-70 traffic. Um, I never, ever thought that I was the person that had the solution, but fortunately, I work with a lot of great minds, and together we are making some progress on, on this tricky corridor of ours. As you just mentioned, you, you've spent time on I-70. I have as well, as I'm speaking to Margaret Bowes, the director of the I-70 Coalition. And anyone who has skied or gone camping on a weekend, especially, is familiar with that traffic congestion along Interstate 70. And, and winter can be bad, but there's actually more traffic, higher traffic numbers in the summer than the winter. Is the long-term solution here maybe three lanes from Denver all the way to Eagle, or is it something else or a combination of many things? It's definitely a combination. You've probably heard the phrase, we can't build our way out of I-70 congestion, and it's absolutely true. The traffic studies that have been done indicate that even if we six-lane I-70 from Denver to, say, the Eagle Airport, those lanes would be congested in just a matter of years. So we know it needs to be a combination of some highway improvements, but also some non-infrastructure improvements like transit and carpooling and just reducing the number of cars that are traveling that corridor, especially on weekends and holidays. 
And to clarify, when you say six lanes, you don't mean six lanes eastbound and six lanes westbound. I don't think that's possible. No, (laughs) no, that would be three lanes in each direction. And, you know, there's just very limited options for alleviating corridor congestion because we are so geographically constrained through that corridor. You know, there's a rock wall on one side, a mountain on one side and a, a, a creek on the other and historic assets and things that we don't necessarily want to disturb or destroy. And so in addition, like I said, to some highway improvements like climbing lanes and improved intersections and express lanes, we know we just need to reduce the number of cars traveling. And transit is a great way to do that. And that's part of what your campaign, Break Up With Your Car, is about, encouraging Mm -hmm. people to use transit to the mountains. Well, will that help? Because most of the vehicles on I-70, especially in the winter, have three or four people in them. So it's not the same as a typical morning or afternoon commute in Metro Denver, where there's just a single uh, person in the car at a time. Mm-hmm. Well, if you have a bus that holds 35 people, um, that still removes quite a, a few cars off the road, even if those cars do have the average, I think it's 2.6 per car on a winter weekend. So yes, we can still absolutely move the needle if we get more folks into transit vehicles, whether they're buses or a smaller shuttle size vehicle. I was reading some information that was sent to me about the Bustang. And the Bustang mm-hmm. is that bus that is run by the state of Colorado saying the cost of a CDOT Bustang West Line ticket, basically to get from Denver to Vail, is more affordable, they say, than the cost of fuel for a round trip in a personal vehicle by $4. I, I think if you asked 1,000 people, 999 of them would probably say that the $4 is worth the cost of having their own personal vehicle with them (laughs) in the mountains, no matter if it's summer or winter. You know, that could be the case. We know that um, not every person is going to uh, adopt transit as a mode of transportation. Uh, We do also know, though, that as uh, parking costs increase, then that's another motivator. And we know that the cost of Travel is not just how much it costs gas in your car, but there's a whole lot of other costs involved as well. Uh, Also, there are folks that don't have cars. Increasingly, millennials, they don't even want to own cars. And so we do feel, and numbers to date have demonstrated, that there is strong interest in transit service between the Front Range and the mountains. So this campaign is really trying to spread the word that those options exist. They're actually expanding pretty dramatically. And then once folks get up to the mountains, almost every single mountain community has a very robust local transit system. Many times it's free. And it does offer a lot of uh, freedom to be able to travel up in the mountains without having to pay for parking. Um, You can go to Apple Ski and maybe enjoy yourself a little bit more than you might if you were driving. And so there's all sorts of of benefits to getting out of your personal vehicle and into transit. My guest is Margaret Bowes. She's the director of the I-70 Coalition, talking about alleviating some of the traffic issues on I-70. As you know, when you go skiing, you're going to a specific spot for a specific activity, whether it's mm-hmm. to any of the mount, any of the mountain communities up there uh, the, along I-70. Little 
trickier, I guess, to go to Winter Park maybe, but uh, I think the Mustang goes up there as well. But when you go up for those specific activities, it's completely different in the summer because I am unable to put my camping gear and my tent and my backpack and all the other stuff that I want to have with me as I go camping in the summer and get to those places that are not in those towns, whether it's Vale or Breckenridge or Silverthorne, I, I need mm-hmm. some other vehicle to get me to those camping spots. So it's not so the transit might work during the winter, but not necessarily during the summer. You know, I would say you're absolutely right. If you're wanting to go camping, then um, then Bustang or the future Pegasus service is probably not for you. But these vehicles do have uh, bike racks. And if you're going for a bike ride or a hike, um, it, it's, a, it's a perfectly wonderful mode of transportation. A lot of, I mentioned the mountain transit systems are doing um, service transit to trails where they are providing service to popular trailheads. You know, and the, the fact of the matter is these days in the mountains, outdoor interest in the outdoors has expanded so much that oftentimes folks are arriving at trailheads and they can't park the parking lot is full. And so that's another benefit of getting dropped off by a shuttle vehicle is not to have to mess around with crowded parking lots. You're you're right. It's not going to be a great mode of transportation for everyone, but we do believe that it's going to meet the needs of the majority of folks that are coming to the mountains to maybe hike or bike. The costs of these bus services are subsidized highly by the state. You just mentioned some uh, one of the Pegasus service. As the improvements are planned on I-70 at Floyd Hill, as part of those improvements, CDOT mentioned their new small bus service that they're going to call Pegasus, and mm-hmm. they're buying 10 vans at $125,000 each, and then they're budgeting the minimum fare box recovery of just 20%. Hopefully, they say they could get up to 40%, so that means they're not only expecting to ask riders for a, for a minimal part of of the recouping of the, of the cost of this uh, of, of the fees to pay. I mean, really, we're looking at paying two hundred fifty to three hundred twenty thousand dollars for rides for a service that costs over a million dollars. I mean, a million dollars of taxpayer money, and as a taxpayer, it seems like there could be maybe better ways to spend that money along in improving I seventy. Um, you know, I. Do not, I'm not intimately involved in all those figures you just threw out, so I guess I'd prefer not to comment on that. Uh, that would be better asked of CDOT. Okay, but but overall, you, you could probably comment on, on that buses typically, whether it's Bustang or Pegasus, are highly subsidized. RTD is the same way. They are highly mm-hmm. subsidized by taxpayers. So the fare box, in other words, the people that might ride that, bus going up into the mountains are going to be paying a fraction of what it actually costs to provide that surface service. So is it, is it worth it to provide that service? Well, absolutely. We just, tourism is such a huge economic driver in the state of Colorado. And frankly, uh, skiing in Colorado is developing a reputation of, you know, of being synonymous with traffic. And so if we can alleviate some of that congestion and get folks to the mountains where they want to recreate, um, then I think it is a wonderful investment. The state is also very focused on reduction of greenhouse gases. And so this investment in 
uh, different travel options is working towards those goals as well of reducing carbon emissions in the state. What are the solutions for people that would say they would never get on a bus to go to the mountains? The people that just are uh, either back backcountry adventurers or Mm -hmm. just would rather have their own vehicle and drive uh, with a couple of friends or even just by themselves. What, what is the solution for people like them or is there one that just won't get on a bus? Well, I don't know if there's a solution for them. They'll be, um, you know, in the lanes of traffic and there are the mountain express lanes um, that allow for a more reliable travel time and a faster trip. But like I said earlier, we know that not every single Colorado is going to adopt transit, but we do feel that there's enough benefits that many will decide it is a great option. Um, it, they're being part of the solution of reducing cut ingestion. It can be cheaper than driving. It reduces emissions. And I think as our travel options along I-70 increase, it'll be a very flexible and convenient option for folks to travel to the mountains, summer and winter. My guest is Margaret Bowes, the director of the I-70 Coalition, talking about some of the issues along I-70. What about um, a vehicle tunnel, some improvements to get people to Grand County, a vehicle tunnel right next to the Moffat train tunnel that would take people from Boulder, Nederland, and up into Grand County and alleviate some of the traffic on I-70? You know, I have not heard of a tunnel option in that area, but um, folks in Grand County might be considering that, but that is not something that is necessarily on the table for the I-70 Mountain Corridor specifically. Um, There are discussions of at what point a third bore up at the Eisenhower Memorial Tunnel will be needed, and so there's all sorts of Uh, options on the table that are being considered under the long-term plan for the I-70 Mountain Corridor. And when you say a third bore, you're talking about a separate tunnel or widening the tunnels that they already have to go from two lanes to three lanes each way? It would be a separate tunnel. And that has to come at a massive price tag, I would imagine. Yes, everything on I-70 comes with a massive <laughs> whether it's high-speed transit of some sort, a third board at the tunnel, or um, improving Floyd Hill. Um, big price tags, for sure. What about major improvements to Highway 285 and make that a more interstate-like uh, highway that would take people from the Front Range closer to the south side of Breckenridge, and then they can access I-70 that way, or they can continue into c- uh, central Colorado? You know, that is outside of my jurisdiction, so I honestly don't know what the plans are for 285 as far as potential expansion. Um, I do get asked why we don't try to encourage more people to go that way and enter into the mountains, maybe through um, the south, through over Hoosier Pass into Breckenridge. And the answer there is that that corridor is already so highly trafficked, it really can't handle um, much more. And so we don't necessarily encourage people to take that roundabout way um, because it's already very crowded. (laughs) Yeah, right. What about your opinion? And and I remember talking about this for, uh, I mean, 20 years or so. There's always been the uh, idea floated around about a train or a monorail going from Denver to Vail, maybe Mm -hmm. all the way to Eagle. Uh, I, Mm -hmm. I, I think 
the problem there again is that you can't bring all your camping gear and all that other stuff onto the train and it only takes you to specific spots much like just the buses do what's your opinion mm-hmm. on a, a train or monorail system well the long-term plan does include investigation of such a high-speed transit system we have a feasibility study that was done back in 2014 that indicated that you know today there is the technology in in use that would work for this I-70 mountain corridor. It is the price tag that's pretty daunting. I think it was 16 to 20 billion dollars to build such a system. And um, but, and we also recognize that a lot has changed around technology since 2014. So that is still on the ta- on the table and is still being investigated further. We're really interested in the discussions around front range passenger rail in the new district that was formed, and we'll be participating on that because we know that any future mountain high speed system, the ridership is very much dependent on there being a system along the front range. So we're watching that process with interest. It's only half the cost of Twitter. <laughs> is that all? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> what about the Hyperloop? We've talked about the Hyperloop. There was supposed to be some testing of a Hyperloop-type system, uh, maybe even along the Front Range or going up into the mountains. Yeah, and I have not heard recently where that uh, potential pilot is at. My guest is Margaret Bose. She's the director of the I-70 Coalition as we're talking about solutions uh, and issues up along I-70. So you folks must have some short-term and long-term goals to try to alleviate some of this congestion. So in the short term, is it just about trying to encourage people to get on the bus and um, alleviate some of the traffic that way? Yeah, short term, we're trying to increase transit use. We're trying to increase carpooling. And there's um, some new carpool apps out there that can facilitate that on a larger scale. And then also changing travel behavior. We know that folks all want to jump on I-70 the same days of the week and times of day. And if we can get folks to kind of spread out that demand a little bit, it can really reduce congestion pretty significantly. Well, isn't that, would, isn't that demand mostly in the winter time and mostly just so folks can get up there at the start of the ski uh, time, which is uh, 9 a.m.? You know, it's not just um, winter. It's absolutely summer as well. We see the similar weekend congestion patterns on the weekends in the summer. Um, but we encourage things like spending a night, if you can, in the mountains, or if you are going to just be a day tripper on Saturday and Sunday, staying in the mountains a little bit longer, um, enjoying a slice of pizza and getting back on I-70 at a later time when the demand isn't quite so great. So are there uh, deals then or are there incentives to have people stay in the mountains? Those prices to get an Airbnb now or even a hotel room are are going up and up with, with everything and inflation going up. Yes, there are. The I-70 Coalition has a program called Peak Time Deals where folks can go onto our website, goi70.com, and search for deals on lodging and uh, food and beverage and activities and find incentives to avoid those peak travel times. And are those relatively good deals? It's not just I'm going to get 5% off. Am I getting a a decent deal to incentivize my wanting to stay up there and and maybe not drive on I-70 in those peak times? I guess that's a matter of opinion, and um, there's absolutely some deals are better than others, so I encourage folks to go check that out. That's on goi70.com. It's also where people can find 
all the information there is about these transit options and these new carpool apps. Um, so it's a great resource for folks that use I-70 regularly. The longer term goals, it has to be more about either expansion, maybe that extra bore, as you, as you were mentioning. But where does the long term goals, uh, where, what do they look like as, as you look down, you know, two, five, 10, 15 years? Uh-huh. So the long-term goals include having that six-lane capacity, so three lanes in each direction from Denver to um, Idaho Springs and or through the Floyd Hill area. And so that Floyd Hill project is definitely part of the long-term improvements. Vail Pass is another area that needs uh, some significant improvement, and that project is also underway. So those are two examples of um, projects with a very long-term benefit to them. But we're basically looking at the long-term goals as having three lanes going all the way up that way and have improvements uh, as we continue to go out in the next 20 years as as people are continuing to move here because we continue to see the, the rapid growth of what, maybe even uh, 50% more people in the next 20 years. Well, I wouldn't say it's a foregone conclusion that it will be six-lane capacity from Denver to Vail because we know that those lanes will just fill up with traffic. You mentioned, you know, it's a very popular state. People continue to move here. Interest in the outdoors is increasing. And so just expanding the highway is maybe not the best investment for the state. We need to look at how we can move people in fewer vehicles, um, or we're going to be continually butting up against this I-70 congestion problem that we have today. Uh, so again, no cheap solutions, and there's no simple <laughs> solutions either. <laughs> yeah, you're exactly right. So would you like to see maybe some kind of specific tax or fee that would help just go to I-70 and, and maybe help uh, alleviate some of the congestion, whether it's through the transit or through uh, widening lanes? Sure, we'd love that. <laughs> I'll sign up for that. <laughs> is that something you folks are at? I mean, obviously you would like it. Is is that something yeah. that you've worked on with the legislature or with voters? No, we have not specifically, but there are ways to form a district, much like the Front Range Passenger Rail District was formed, so that they can ask voter, voters in their district to tax themselves to raise money for improvements. A similar arrangement could be pursued on the I-70 Mountain Corridor. We do know for if we were to build any kind of high-speed transit system, it would take far more um, than just state money. We would need significant federal dollars and likely a public-private partnership as well. You are, as I mentioned earlier, also the executive director of the Colorado Association of Ski Towns. And with more lanes with more people going up there, even if it was mm -hmm. full uh, of people, that is putting a lot more pressure on these ski towns during the winter and the summer to handle all these people that are getting up there. Uh, are, are they yeah. able to uh, handle all the influx of, of visitors that are coming up there every year? I'm so glad you brought that up. It's a very good point that as, as we improve I-70, if we were to improve I-70 to pump more and more cars up through that corridor, those cars get off somewhere and our communities are fairly limited in their ability or their interest in expanding their roads and their parking lots. So um, mountain communities are very interested in getting their visitors to their communities, again, without a vehicle. Um, 
So that's uh, a strong interest, not just in I-70 Mountain Corridor communities, but around the state. Yeah, and the pressure has to be also on some of those other state highways off of I-70 going up to, you know, up to Leadville and up to the backcountry where there's a bunch of roads that people like to go exploring. You know how there's folks that just want to go get that Instagram picture. So, I mean, yep, are, are, yep, we, are we right. able, I mean, as a, as a mountain resident yourself, are we able, you think, to handle the influx of people that are going to be uh, using those resources and, and on the off-roads or the backcountry roads and the other state highways? Well, it's already very much a challenge. I think if you asked any resort community, they would state that they're um, looking at carrying capacity and wondering if we're bumping up against that when you look at U.S. Forest Service trailheads or in-town parking. Uh, we have a whole lot of visitors and limited space to put their vehicles. So um, I think every resort community is focused on this, this issue of getting folks to their communities without a vehicle. How has your quality of life changed, if at all, since you've moved up into the mountains? You know, I think uh, I-70 is definitely a big influence in all of our lives. For those that live along the corridor, it really makes you stop and think when you're willing to drive to Denver or drive back from Denver. And then even on a more local level, there are times in Summit County where you do not go to the grocery store because, you know, it's the height of skier traffic and you might uh, what normally is a 10-minute trip to the grocery store could easily take 45 minutes. So we all learn to work around traffic, that is for sure. My guest is Margaret Bose. She's the director of the I-70 Coalition, just talking about some of the pressure of I-70 and how much traffic is going up there on a regular basis. Uh, the, the major talk around town has to be, for you folks there in the mountains, really does have to be this quality of life issue and whether it's worth staying up there or not. Do you think that people are going to then realize, well, maybe it's not worth waiting 45 minutes to go to the grocery ticket, you know, get to <laughs> there and back. It used to be such a great place to live. Is, is it worth now maybe going back to the front range or somewhere else that isn't so uh, busy? Oh, you certainly um, hear everything along that spectrum. Uh, folks that have had enough of, um, mountain living and decide to move back to a lower elevation, others that are looking for the next best spot that hasn't been discovered yet. But, you know, it's we have a beautiful state with some really great communities. And so I think a lot of people just ex accept that as the price of living in a very wonderful place. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure that you talk to other people and they probably throw out their ideas to you all the time about how to fix things. Have there been any unique or out of the way, out of the you know box ideas that have landed on your desk? You know, um, there are a lot of very um, invested, bright people that have been working on this issue for many years. And so, yeah, I think there's some creative solutions out there and some are more feasible than others. Um, and Again, I mentioned that technology is changing so quickly, and who knows what the next system might be, you know, the, the next Hyperloop, for example, that will just be a great fit for for this really tricky corridor that we're, we're working on. Maybe to be all autonomous cars that'll take people at 200 miles an hour because they're all driving themselves instead of us driving them up there, right? Yeah, that would absolutely make a difference. <laughs> well, it, it, Margaret, I, I really appreciate your time. Is there anything else you would want folks to know about the uh, coalition or uh, about how they can get some more information about Go I-70? 
Now, just I uh, would really love for folks to go to GoI70.com and check out all the great information there. And then um, always a good idea to reference the state's co-trip.org uh, before you travel to know what to expect before you jump on the road. Margaret Bowes, the director of I-70 Coalition, thanks so much for your time. Appreciate it. And uh, good luck with all your efforts on making I-70 better. Thank you. And thank you for your time. And if you would like some more information uh, about the I-70 Coalition or the uh, Go I-70 uh, link, I have that in the description of this show so you can click it there. People tend to act like water. I've said this for a long time. They look for the path of least resistance. And in this case, the path of least resistance is basically to be in your own car, to haul your own stuff to where you want to go, even if it means you have to sit in slower traffic. Most people, I've found, act in their own interests. It's the American way. I, I would rather not sit in traffic. I don't think you would like to sit in traffic. But I would want to sit on a shared bus in free-flowing traffic even less. There will be some people who will hear that and then shake their heads and say that I am the problem. No, I just want the freedom to travel how I like to travel and not be told I have to travel in a certain way. Not everyone wants to ride on a bus or a train. I, I like trains. I think they're kind of neat. I took the train, the Amtrak, from Denver to Glenwood Springs one time. I, my uh, uh, family was traveling uh, here. The first time they had ever been to Colorado. Thought it'd be neat to take them on the, uh, on the train up to Glenwood Springs to go skiing. Uh, up to a Sunlight Mountain because it wasn't that tough of a mountain. Um, and it was fine. Only doable because my father-in-law drove his truck up to meet us at Glenwood Springs and helped all uh, helped haul all of our ski gear to and from the mountain to go skiing. It would have been very difficult otherwise to get to the mountain with all of our ski gear without our own vehicle uh, just taking the train. Not impossible. It's not impossible to do it. It is just more inconvenient. It is more difficult. It takes more effort. And I don't think people are willing to make that effort. Some are. Many are not. Again, back to the path of least resistance. Owning your own vehicle, using your own vehicle, is easier than a shared vehicle, especially when you're going to a destination like the beach, like skiing, like camping especially camping, where you need your gear to be in the car, where you're hauling it, you put it on your back, and then off you go from the trailhead, right? Not from a bus station in downtown XYZ, wherever you are in the Appalachians or the Rockies. Uh, and I know there are many people that disagree with that idea. In small settings, like a, a urban 20-block, densely-packed city area, Void of personal vehicles, put your tram in there. Save people walking and biking time. Fine. Outside of those areas, it's okay to have your own personal vehicle. It's so interesting to me how many people who advocate heavily for bikes only or pedestrians only own their own car and drive fairly often. It's okay to ride your bike or walk to work if you live in the densely packed area. Or it's okay for some people if they want to ride their bike 
to work on the streets. I, I'm not going to take my life into uh, into or I'm not going to risk my life in that way. There are, in my opinion, too many bad, uh, inattentive, not paying attention drivers. I guess what that's what inattentive means um, uh, out there. So, so I'm not going to put my life at risk on a bike with so many bad drivers out there driving two or three or four thousand pound vehicles. I will lose that every single time. And so for me, it's not worth it. For you, it might be worth it. We've had people on the show here who are all bike, all pedestrian, no vehicles all at any time. But that's just not practical. It's just not. Anyway, I'm sure you have comments about this. I'm sure you have thoughts about this. You can share them with me on the listener hotline. Best way for me to then replay them here on the show, 303-832-0217. That number and all the other contact links are in the description of this show. Anyway, thanks again for being here. Thanks for listening. I do appreciate you, uh, even if you disagree and even if you do agree. Uh, but <laughs> thanks for being here anyway. Till next time, I'm Jason Luber, the Traffic Guy. Be safe and, as always, happy motoring.